Even in a multi-ethnic space, like the one we inhabit here on Sunday mornings, often what can happen is it's limited to Sunday morning. Right? Because there's still a level of safety, of comfort. Because I don't necessarily have to engage with the other on a deeper level. We get to come and sing. It's like, oh, doesn't this feel so good? I'm beside a black person worshiping. Oh, there's a Korean person right there too. This is awesome. I'm here. I'm arrived. Right? And we can feel good about ourselves. And what that can do sometimes is get in the way of us actually taking those next steps to go deeper. Right? To actually know and be known by the cultural other. And so even though we have racial, ethnic, and cultural presence, oftentimes many of us in our churches, even those that are multi-ethnic like ours, we still have the same level of superficial relationships with one another that don't produce knowledge, growth, transformation. But we feel good. Really, the church is just a microcosm of who we are as a society. Right? The unfortunate thing that the research that our very own Michael Emerson and others have produced is that often the evangelical church, rather than being an agent of transformation, an agent of reconciliation in the greater society, we've often simply mirrored what goes on in the larger society. So that even when we do see multi-ethnic churches, oftentimes we don't get to the levels that are necessary to provoke and induce change. And so we continue to do what we do Sunday morning, and then we continue to do what we do Sunday through Sunday, right? Very little impact on our daily lives. And so what are we left with? Because this is simply a mirror oftentimes in our churches of society, right? What we're left with now is this toxic environment of increasing polarization across all kinds of boundaries of difference whether it's racial, ethnic, cultural, and especially these days, political, and understanding increasingly these, these days that all of those lines intersect with one another, right? And we're left with this difficult situation, environment that is crying out for healing, justice, restoration, but that's left with tension bubbling below the surface, waiting for the next moment when a racially or politically charged incident will happen that causes an eruption. And then we'll rip around, yelling at each other, not listening, and then we'll slide back into the normal. Tension, bubbling below the surface, waiting for the next incident to erupt, explode, and then slide back into the way things are and we stay on the merry-go-round over and over and over. Our nation, our churches, many of our relationships are simply in a mess right now of our own doing. Why? At least in part, what I would like to suggest is that it's because of our inability and quite often our unwillingness to enter into the meaningful relationships and dialogue with those who are either in opposing camps or who are simply different than us, right? So we gravitate towards the people who think, act, and do like us. 
Yet this isn't only an American problem, right? This is a world problem. We see this all over the world in different ways and different manifestations, simply acted out a little differently, depending where you're from. But interestingly, of course, if you've read your Bible, you know it's also a Bible problem. It was an early church problem. It was a, it's been a people of God problem, actually, from the very beginning. If you read your Bible from cover to cover, what you see is ethnic tension, ethnic strife, violence, and opposition all the way through from beginning to end at various points. So think about the history in the Old Testament of Israel, right? Israel and Egypt, right? And the Egyptians feeling the tension of this rising people and needing to then impose things to keep them in their place, make sure they kept the power and the wealth. The Philistines and the Israelites, right? Israel drove them out of the land and so continually over years, war, strife, battling over resources and possession and trying to dispossess from the land and their strife. Israel and the nations around it during the exile, right? As nations continue to come in trying to conquer and take and Israel trying to fight and hold off. Later, the Jews and the Samaritans, a product of the exile and intermingling, right? And the, the Jews seeing the Samaritans as those mixed race people, those impure religious people. Then the Jews and the Romans, the oppressors, and every other Gentile nation that Israel viewed as somehow less than them. And then we get into the church, right? Of course things are better now that the church has arrived, that the spirit has been poured out on everybody, right? No. We see more of the same in the church. In Acts 6, we see the tension and the strife between the Hebraic Jewish Christians and the Hellenistic Jewish Christians and the widows of the Hellenistic Jewish Christians being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. One of our first instances in the early New Testament church of systemic racism, right? A system set up to exclude and marginalize and potentially even oppress people, right? We see the continuing challenges of the early Christian church and the Gentiles, right? Manifested, especially in the life of Peter quite often, right? We see these tensions. We, we don't associate with them. This is a Jewish thing, right? It's a chosen people thing. And so we see these moments of ethnic strife all the way through the scriptures. It's sad, but it gives me comfort, right? Because even the people of God in, in the Holy Scriptures suffered with these things. What I want to do today is briefly look at one story that many of you have read many times. I think has been preached on here in different ways at different times at our church. In Acts chapter 10. And I'm going to read this whole story. It's a, it's a long story. It's a long chapter. But uh, I want to draw some highlights out of this where we actually see for the first time, I think, these ethnic barriers being brought, broken down in ways that are redemptive because of the work of Christ and because of the willingness and obedience of one man who hears from God and risks, ventures out and takes some significant risks. So starting in verse one, at Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion to what was known as the Italian Regiment, 
He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. And Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? He asked. And the angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angels who had spoken to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. Now about noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the, road, the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while me the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. And he saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals, as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. And the voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. Now, while Peter was still wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. And while Simon was still thinking about the vision, the spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. And Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, we have come from Cornelius the centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. And then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. And so the next day, Peter started out with them, and some of the believers from Joppa went along. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea, and Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. And Peter entered the house. Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I'm only a man myself. And while talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask you, why did you send for me? And Cornelius answered, three days ago I was in my house praying at this hour at three in the afternoon. Suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He is a guest in the house of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good for you to come. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Then Peter began to speak, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. For the next eight to 10 verses, Peter preaches the gospel to Cornelius in his house. And then what we see in verse 44, it says that while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. 
Then Peter said, surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. One of my favorite stories. I love this story. Not just because of what it symbolizes, right? The, the taking of the gospel, the spreading of the gospel from this little huddled group of believers, these Jewish Christian believers who were trying to protect themselves and stay safe in Jerusalem and in the surrounding areas where they'd been dispersed by the first persecution, right? But here we see the gospel crossing barriers that formerly were deemed uncrossable, right? It's no longer an exclusive gospel. Now it's an inclusive gospel that makes salvation and relationship with God available to everybody, every tribe, nation, tongue. We see the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham, right, in Genesis 12. When God tells Abraham, I will make you a blessing to many nations. And so we see that fulfillment here, right? But I want you to just imagine for a moment, Peter, imagine what's going through his mind as he receives this vision, right? As he receives this vision, he's in confusion, he's got a little bit of an understanding of what's going on, right? Okay, something going on with the food, all right? Uh, something, something maybe, maybe I can start eating, eating stuff, I guess. That's cool. That's cool, right? He's not really getting the picture yet, though, is he? And I love it because this narrative is, 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 is structured around three questions that Peter asks that all revolve around this question of why. What, why are you here? Why, why am I here? Why have you sent for me? Right? And then we see his answer, which I'll get to a little bit later. And this is the power of boundary crossing and bridge building. The power of boundary crossing and bridge building. See, Peter, as he gets this vision, as he gets the invitation and he realizes where he's going, honestly, if I'm him, I've got to imagine that he's thinking and he's asking the question, are you sure, Lord? Uh, wait, are you sure about this? Right? Cornelius, the centurion, Roman soldier, killing us, maybe me? Uh, right? I can imagine Peter wrestling in his mind. He's got this vision. He's still confused, yet all of this stuff is wrestling through his mind as he's, right, the Spirit has said, go with him, Peter, don't worry. But I can imagine that he's still having this internal conversation. Wait, I, I can't go into the house of a Gentile, right? That's a, that's a religious taboo. That's like I'm ceremonially unclean if I do that. This is against our Jewish law. I, I can't do this. And wait a minute. Uh, if, I, if I cross into this, uh, this home, I'm... I'm I'm putting myself in a space where there is some cultural and you know, religious taboos that are, that are all mixed together. And, and on top of that, it's, 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 it's our oppressor, right? What are the others gonna think about this, right? 
You ever been in that situation? What are they going to think if I do this, if I hang out with this person? Right? I can just imagine all of this going through Peter's mind as he's receiving the vision, as he's engaging with these messengers, as he's walking a day's journey back towards Caesarea from Joppa, as he's getting on the doorsteps, and all this stuff is in his mind. I can just imagine the stress and the tension and the anxiety, even though he's stepped out in faith and is trusting, right, and is, is, is following like a good obedient Christian. How many of you know that sometimes when we step out in obedience, it doesn't remove the fear and the anxiety? It doesn't remove the doubt, right? Yet here's Peter courageously stepping forward and saying, okay, you know what, Lord? We've been through a lot, right? I think I'm at a point where I trust you, right? So I'm, I, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go, right? And he does it, and he goes. And here's the thing. He's ultimately able to go simply because of that, right? He has the confidence through what he has been through that when God invites him to follow him into a foreign space that's uncomfortable, he can say, okay, I'm coming, right? Think about what Peter had been through. He'd not only received a vision three times here, right? He's not only been through a lot of stuff, he's spent more than three and a half years by Jesus' side, Right? He's seen Jesus do miracles. He's listened to him. He's observed him. He's seen Jesus actually model this form of boundary crossing and crossing these taboo boundaries himself. Right? He's, he's seen him minister to the Syrophoenician woman. He's seen him minister in, in Tyre. He's seen him uh, cross these boundaries into Samaria and, and heal or uh, and save the woman at the well and the whole, f- the whole town. He's seen all these things. He's been through personal failure as he's rejected Jesus out of his fear and anxiety, and yet he's also been restored. And here we see this restored version of Peter who has encountered personal failure, frustration, disappointment, discouragement, yet who is also, because he's walked by the side of Jesus and then accordingly afterwards been filled with the Holy Spirit and has seen healings work through his own ministry, has seen more than 3,000 get saved in the best evangelistic message ever preached, right? He's, he's seen all of these things happen as he is followed in obedience regardless of the chief priest. He's seen a whole house and the foundation shaken in prayer as they gathered after he and John were released from prison and, and let go as they gathered together. He has seen some amazing things because he is in this intimate, close relationship with God. And because of that, because of the intimacy that he has, the intimacy that, that we're invited into as well, he's able to go forward with courage and with confidence and to step into this foreign space that actually makes no sense to everything that he's ever known. And that is what the invitation to living a life of faith is really about, right? Following into spaces that don't make sense, that might provoke anxiety and fear, that that go against the paradigms of of what I know and where I've been and what I see and what we've done and, and what's acceptable, and stepping in as I follow the Spirit of God. That's an invitation for all of us. See, think about this. We as a church at Newcom 
We're not multi-ethnic because it's cool, right? We're not multi-ethnic because it's trendy, although it's certainly more trendy than it used to be, right? We're not multi-ethnic because it seems like a good idea. In fact, if you've been here long enough, you know that actually, if you've taken risks and pressed in, there's, it's actually sometimes pretty tough. Right? It's pretty challenging sometimes. When my paradigms and understandings of God are challenged, right, as I engage with the racial, cultural, ethnic, political other, it can be difficult, yet we do it. Not because it's cool, but because it's biblical. Think about this. From the beginning, I mentioned the promise to Abraham, right? You'll be a blessing to the nations in Genesis 12. Think about this, Exodus 12. God brings them out of the promised land as what he says, a mixed multitude, right? All of this group of the nations and the slaves and people from everywhere around gathered with them and said, this is our chance. And they joined Israel and they came out. And what do they do initially, right? The first thing is they get out and they're now free. God says through Moses, you will institute the Passover and you will make inclusion for the foreigners among you if they're willing to be circumcised and follow me. And so they do. In Jeremiah 29, we see the exiles actually carried into exile in Babylon by God, and then he says, what? Your blessing and your future, your shalom, your peace is tied to your willingness and ability to cross boundaries and seek the peace and the shalom of your enemies. And then we move into the New Testament. I've already mentioned Jesus' ministries, right? But we see this reversal of this Babel experience on Pentecost where all of the nations are gathered in Jerusalem worshiping God and the Spirit pours out and they, they hear the disciples speaking in tongues from every nation. And the multi-ethnic people of God are now constituted. And we see this going through in Acts 6. I mentioned the, the strife. We don't see them separate like is a ha the habit of many of us today though to say, okay, you know what? Here's what we're going to do. We're going to create a Hellenistic Christian church and a Hebraic Christian church. It'd just be easier if we do that so we don't have to work through this stuff. They don't do that, do they? They say, okay, you know what? We need to change the way we do things. They restructure, they create deacons, all with Greek names by coincidence, right? They restructure this thing to make sure that the widows aren't overlooked. They stay together and they work it out. And then we get to this story here where the Gentiles now for the first time are being brought in but then the culmination, right? All through this early church history, through the book of Acts, we see these things, but then we see what our future as a multi-ethnic people in Revelation 7, where every tribe, nation, and tongue bows before the throne, worshiping the Lamb. The trajectory of salvation history from the beginning to the end of his story is God's desire to break down barriers that divide, bring us together, to glorify him. Here's the challenge. To do that, we need to partner with him in ways that are uncomfortable. Right? The spirit will work. But God, I don't know why he does it. I'd like him to say, do it, right, sometimes. He invites us into the journey to do it with him. Why? Because in 2 Corinthians 5, he says, we are his agents of reconciliation. And to us has been granted the ministry of reconciliation. To live this out, that all the world might see the answer to Jesus' prayers. Father, they'll know you when they see your people's unity. Right? And that's what we've been invited to.
Let's look at Peter really quickly. I love this. I'm all lost in my notes, by the way, just so you know. I'm just sort of rambling along now because the light doesn't work. My Bible's on my notes. I'm just sort of going. Just thought I'd be transparent. We need to enter into foreign space, but here's the thing. To do that well and to see God work, to see us move forward, we need to do it with a posture of vulnerability. And here's the thing. I don't mean vulnerability in the sense of, let me be fully transparent and open with you, Cece. Right? Here's me. That's part of it. That's a big part of it. But what I mean more intentionally with this spirit of vulnerability or this posture of vulnerability is actually putting ourselves in a space where I'm completely vulnerable. I don't have all the answers. I may not feel or be equipped for this. I'm vulnerable. It's like when Jesus sends out the 72 in Luke 10. He says, no, 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 don't take a bag, don't take an extra cloak, don't take any money, don't take, uh, no, no extra sandals, don't, don't take anything, just go and be totally dependent on the people there that you're going to preach the gospel to. Stay there as long as they'll have you. That's vulnerable. That's what God is inviting us into if we're going to move into this ministry of boundary crossing, of bridge building, is entering into foreign unsafe spaces vulnerably, putting it all on the line. Here's a, another clip that I want to show you from the movie McFarland. You didn't know you were going to get a free movie today, did you? This is a scene where Coach White, Kevin Costner's um, character, has right now the fear, the anxiety of losing his team because three of his runners, his cross-country runners, basically have been told by their father, they can't run anymore, you need to pick in the fields, I can't afford to lose the hours, no more practices. Kevin Costner has gone over to their house for dinner, kind of popped in and said, hey, can we uh, talk about this, right? Because Kevin Costner at this point in the movie is really still all concerned about his goal, his agenda, winning, having a job, being a coach, getting the heck out of McFarland, right? Because he doesn't want to be there. And he's had the disappointment of realizing that, you know what, I have no idea what drives these kids, what drives these parents, I don't know anything about them. So he makes a drastic decision. So I'm gonna turn your attention to the screen and we'll take a look at the decision. Turn it over. This will be your road. Okay. Keep your knees bent or hit your back. You okay, Marco? You guys uh, do this all day? Yeah. Get this build done. Maybe start on another one. 
You get paid by the hour? Not by the hour, by the field. The faster we get this one done, the more our father makes. By the field. Hey, Demacio, how old were you guys when you started working for your dad? 10, 11. Is that even legal? <laughs> Strawberries it is, and potatoes. Other crops, you gotta be 12. I remember the first day I started, I wanted to quit after the first hour because it was so hard. Cried like a baby. Yeah, I know how you feel. You wanna quit, Blanco? What do you think? <laughs> Do this every few hours when you first start. Your body's not used to it. Gracias, señora. <laughs> okay, listen, guys, I get it. Your father needs you. All right, so this is, uh, thank you. This is what we do. On days you have to pick late, we practice later. All right, on the days we have meets, you pick extra early, and you still make your dad's quota. I'll pick with you if I have to. Only if you have to, all right, coach? You don't look too good right now. <laughs> Coach, you sure about that? Not Blanco, not White, not Holmes? No, Coach. Coach, good. What are you eating there? Tacos, you want one? No, give me, give me two. <laughs> I'm just saving you, Danny. <laughs> One of my favorite scenes in the movie. What did you see? What do we see happening here? Right? We see Kevin Costner, not unlike Peter, right, entering into this space totally ill-equipped. 
not having the answers, not sure what the outcomes are gonna be, but being willing to put himself in proximity and in more meaningful relationship with those he's trying to coach and reach and use for his own purposes, right? now we see him coming to an understanding. He, he enters into what, is, what he declares later is the worst day of work in his life. He realizes now what these young men are going through on a daily basis, trying to make it and then run eight or 10 miles, practice. Right, and he comes in ill-equipped, like Peter in verse 23, right, and, and on where he says, after, after verse 25, as he entered the house, Cornelius met him, Peter made him get up, says, get up, and then he says, you're well aware that it's against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile, but God show me I shouldn't call anyone unclean. And he ends by saying, may, may I ask, why did you send me? See, Peter didn't read through a treatise of apologetics on how to reach a Roman centurion, right? Peter didn't go to a quick huddle prayer team with his, pray for me, everybody. I'm going in, right? Peter just followed along obediently and said, here I am. What am I doing here? Coach White is in a similar situation. <laughs> I can imagine as he's bent over, his back is seizing up. What am I doing here, right? Oh my gosh into this just crazy, difficult situation. But what did it do? By entering into that space, he was actually able to experience life for just a moment, as these young men do every day. And that's what the power of entering into a situation, into a relationship, vulnerably can do for us. I realize that I, I may not have the answers. Maybe I don't know the solution to fix your problems after all. Maybe things aren't completely level and even. Maybe you actually have to work harder than I do to have not even close to the same outcome. You see, I, what happens is that I cultivate empathy. God develops empathy in me when I enter into those spaces vulnerably and it takes the relationship to a new level. You see what happened, the subtle shift that the filmmakers show us, right? It's not Blanco, now it's Coach. Because now they see that he's willing to go the extra mile, not just for him, but for them. And that's what God is inviting us into. How do we take those steps in, in a position of vulnerability as well? And this leads to my last point. Right, if we desire to be bridge builders, if we desire to build bridges across boundaries of difference, we need to learn from racial, cultural, and ethnic others. We need to learn, we need to have a learning posture. It's not about what I know and what I have to offer, it's about what I have to learn from you. What you have to learn from me sometimes as well. Right? It's not that I don't have any answers, it's that I don't have all the answers, and that my answers might be partial. And yet, you may have some of the answers, and together, we come up with a better answer that's more full. Together, as I share how I understand God, who he is, and how he's at work in the world, as you share who God is, how he's at work in the world, as, as you share with me what you're going through, as I share with you what I'm going through, we start to realize that in spite of our differences, there are things we share. We also start to realize that God might be bigger than the box that I've kept him in my, my whole life. 
because of my own cultural lenses that have shaped him to be this big. And now as I spend time, all of a sudden my box becomes that big. And if I have enough time, it might become that big. It's probably never gonna get that big, but if I can at least go from here to here, I can accomplish one of God's primary agendas in my life, and that's growth and transformation. Because here's the thing, the promise of bridge building, of entering into the foreign space with vulnerability, with a learning posture, is transformation. Not for the people that I'm just necessarily trying to reach. Sure, it can happen for them, but transformation in me. That's what we see in Jim White's story, this transformation. This is what we see in Peter's story throughout, right? In verse 34, after Cornelius explains everything, what does Peter say? He says, then Peter began to speak, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. Preaches the gospel and the household is saved. The household is transformed, but Peter is also transformed. And that's what happens when we can enter into multi-ethnic spaces, not with our arrogance. I know I'm guilty of this a lot, right? Those of us who like to consider ourselves woke, right? We've, we've arrived, we've got the answers. It's real easy to come in with pride and with arrogance. Why? Because lots of people like to come to you and say, hey, can you help us do this? Sure, right? Feels good to be wanted, and to be needed. But as my wife will attest to you, there are many times still where both of us are on this journey together. We've been married now 19 years. White boy from the prairies of central Canada to this young African-American woman raised in the projects of West Seattle. And there's times we come together and have conversations and she's looking at me like, you better not say that around other black people. <laughs> what, what do you mean? And there's times where I've got to look at her and say, you do remember I'm white, right? And she's experiencing a bit of venting and anger, which if you know my wife sort of goes on for a while, right? <laughs> And as she's ripping on every white person she can think of, I'm like, I'm white too, <laughs> right? But here's the thing. We've invested in our relationship in such a way that even in those moments where we don't fully line up and where we've got to get smacked, right? We have the trust built up that we know one another's hearts. We know who we actually are. We know where we're trying to go that we can say, I can extend you grace because I know this isn't who you are and where you're trying to go. And because we've demonstrated in response to that that we're willing to grow and change. Say, oh my gosh, I didn't even realize that was there. You know what? I'm sorry. I repent. And we do something different. The promise of bridge building. When we're willing to enter into foreign spaces, into multi-ethnic conversations, into multi-ethnic spaces, right? With vulnerability, with a learning posture, the result and the promise is transformation. Let me end with one more short clip for you, because I can't end the sermon without the end of the movie, the message, right? Because this is the clip that highlights 
the transformation that's available to all of us if we're willing to enter into those spaces. So turn your attention to the screen for one last clip. All right, everybody, gather around. Come on. Why don't you look around? Best in the state, right? Every team that's here deserves to be, including you. But they haven't got what you got, all right? They don't get up at dawn like you and go to work in the fields, right? They don't go to school all day and then go back to those same fields. That's what you do. And then you come out with me and you run eight miles, 10 miles, and you take on, you take on even more pain. These kids don't do what you do. They can't even imagine it. When I went out in the field that day with you Diaz kids, I'll be honest with you, it was, a, it was the worst day's work I ever had to do in my life. And I said to myself, whatever kind of crappy job I end up in, it'll never be as tough as that. You kids do it every day. And your parents hope they can do it every day. And they'll do it for a lifetime if it means a better life for you. You guys are superhuman. Don't you endure just to be here, to get a shot at this? The kind of privilege that someone like me takes for granted? There's nothing you can't do with that kind of strength, with that kind of heart. Kids have the biggest hearts I've ever seen. Now go run your race. Thomas, you're the, you're the captain. Coach, want to call it? Uno, dos, tres, make fire! see the change from the first scene, the fear, the anxiety, through his immersion and willingness to enter in to the promise of transformation, for learning to become a bridge builder. This is what God is inviting each of us into. He's inviting us into the same journey. He's inviting us through this upcoming series, Multi-Ethnic Conversations, to be willing to take the same risks, to be willing to enter into a space where I might feel ill-equipped. Maybe I don't feel like I've got the answers. Maybe I'm afraid that I'll say something stupid or offensive. Maybe I'm gonna get called out. Maybe they'll think I'm a racist. Right. God is inviting each of us to consider what it might be like to enter into that uncomfortable space, not because he's a sadist, not because he wants to inflict damage on you or me, 
but because he wants us to experience the same type of transformation that we see illustrated here in this clip, that we see illustrated in the life of Peter as Peter enters in and crosses those boundaries that are uncrossable. And so the question for you to consider is this, what what boundaries is God inviting you to cross? What boundaries is he inviting you to cross to become a bridge builder rather than somebody who raises walls, who stays safe, who stays comfortable with people who think, act, and speak only like me? Might God be inviting each one of us to take a risk, a step forward in faith into some difficult, challenging spaces that he can do the work in you and in me that he desires. That we might experience the kind of transformation that helps us to truly live into our call to be agents of reconciliation in a broken, fractured world, in a divided world, who would embody and live out the type of faith that lives the reality that Jesus tore down the veil. He tore down the wall that divides so that Jew and Gentile could come together into one new humanity. One household where there's no foreigner or alien, where there's no citizen or non-citizen, but all citizens, all members of God's household, his family. Ephesians chapter two. It's who we are. He's already declared it. And so the challenge for us is, do we want to live into who God says we already are? Let's pray. Lord, as we get ready to come to the communion table together as one multi-ethnic family, we thank you that you have broken down the barriers that divide us but we thank you especially that you have given us the resources we need to be bridge builders, that you have given us your spirit so that we can step out in faith across uncomfortable boundaries into spaces that don't feel safe, where we're totally vulnerable and dependent upon you and on the other. God, give us the courage to step out, to allow you to do the work in us that you desire. God, you've promised to complete a good work in us, and we just pray that this would be another step along the way that allows you to do that. God, we give ourselves to you. We reject any bit of fear or anxiety that might prevent it from happening, and we pray that you would give us the courage to follow you into uncomfortable waters. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.